<laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness and for your word. And Lord, we just want to hear from you and, and uh, hear your heart for your church today, Lord. And what a great heart it is. And so uh, help us to uh, just capture, capture a, a bit of it today that would cause change in our lives and bring glory and honor to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would turn to Isaiah chapter 54. It's come up a little bit in conversation I've t as I've kind of talked with people and, and um, uh, just different interactions that to me are kind of teaching points for me at least, um, that I thought it'd be worthwhile maybe to just to spend a couple minutes and go back uh, backwards and consider kind of why we do what we do. Some of you know, some of you heard a lot of this before, but I think it's probably helpful for me to share this uh, just periodically. And so I'll probably always do that periodically, but here we go. Uh, so we're reading the Bible today, okay? Why do we read the Bible? We'll talk about that more as we go. You can answer. Anybody want to? I give you those awkward questions like, is this, I'm supposed to answer this or am I supposed to just like nod? Well, you can do whatever you want. Um, because I can't see you. Um, but we know 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says this. The Word of God is living... All Scripture... I'm sorry, I went, almost went to Hebrews. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we have a high regard for God's Word, a higher regard for God's Word, frankly, than my own opinions. And we also recognize, myself included, our tendency to sometimes elevate our own opinions. And so we read the Bible. We believe the Bible is inspired, including the Old Testament and the New Testament, including prophecy. And as we read it, let me just, if I can kind of take us back a little bit. We read it to how I was taught years ago. We read it by observation, interpretation, and application. Like, for example, we might say, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Okay? For example, this is just an example that came to my mind. We could read Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. Right? What does it say? Husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. What does that mean? What's the interpretation of that? Well, Paul was, and so that's when we kind of bring in some, some, some context, some understanding of the culture, stuff like that, the kind of stuff that we kind of work through here on Sunday morning. So what does that mean? Well, Paul was talking to the, to the uh, Ephesian church, and he, he was addressing husbands in that part because he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And he was bringing in the idea that Christ loved the church, and that's the same way that husbands are supposed to love the wives, and it was written to those um, to those men, those husbands in Ephesus in the first century AD. Is that fair? Well, what does that mean to me? Well, it means if it's good enough for them, it's probably also good enough for me, right? And so I should love my wife like Christ loved the church, just like they should love their wives like Christ loved the church. That's the application of that. And the reason I kind of, I mean, that's probably an obvious example, but sometimes there are times where we might take an interpretation of something and misapply it in a way that it wasn't intended to be applied. Does that make sense? And so it's important in our minds to kind of keep in mind the observation, the, uh, the interpretation, the application. Specifically, this comes up when we're reading prophecy. Because much of prophecy was intended, you've heard me say this a million times before, much of prophecy is intended to be interpreted very literally, Okay. And we know that there's prophecy about Jesus coming, uh, coming back to earth. We know there's a prophecy about uh, the Great Tribulation. We know there's a prophecy about the rapture of the church. And all those things um, are largely uh, to be interpreted literally. And the, the um, sort of the, the data point that we use for that is when Jesus came back the first time, when Jesus came to earth the first time, he came fulfilling a lot of Old Testament prophecy. We've read a lot of it in Isaiah. 
right? Isaiah, stuff like he was born of a virgin, right? Was that interpreted, was, was that fulfilled literally or figuratively? Very literally. He was going to be born in Bethlehem, figurative or literal? Very literal. And so all these things uh, were done very literally the first time, so we can presume that uh, much of it will be done literally uh, in yet future events. Yet there's sometimes when he speaks in ways that are very, um, that are, appear to be very metaphorical, very, uh, you know, like he might uh, talk about, you know, Israel is like a, like a, a fig tree, stuff like that, right? And so, um, so if we keep in our minds observation, interpretation, application, I think that helps us kind of get through that, okay? One of the reasons I bring this up is that oftentimes when we consider prophecy, we read about the nation of Israel. And there's some schools of thought, and again, I'm, not, I'm here just to tell you the Scripture as I've been taught, as I understand it, as I read it, as I think, but I don't have the corner on the theology market, right, or anything like that. I'm just telling you what, how I see it, okay? And there's lots of, and so I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go to battle with another well-intended, God-honoring person that I'm going to spend eternity with if his or her uh, view on some of these things is different than mine. But I'll just tell you kind of how I, how I see it and, and in light of the background that I just gave you. Well, there's a lot of specific references to the nation of Israel. And um, some would say that the nation of Israel rebelled against God, God kind of dealt with them, right? First he dealt with them by sending them to sending the, the remnant of Judah there to Babylon. We've talked about that quite a bit. And then in 70 AD, he, come, he brings the Romans, and the Romans come and basically decimate the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel ceases to exist until 1948. And so a lot of, I mean, 70 AD to 1948 is a pretty good stretch of time, right? And so a lot of theologians in that interim time, particularly a lot of this thought comes from some of the reformers, okay? And so, you know, imagine, I mean, with all due respect, you're living in 1500, 1600 AD. The nation of Israel has ceased to exist since 70 AD. It might be fair for you to think, I think God's pretty much done with Israel, right? And I think God is replacing Israel with the church, right? That's a reasonable thought process, except we, I just told you, I set you up, that we interpret as literally as possible, right? So what happens? Boom, lo and behold, we, you know, we like to think we're so smart because hindsight's twenty twenty. We could, you know, we'd say if I was there in 1600, I would have said, we're taking that literal, right? Well, we can say that because the nation of Israel has reexisted, since 1948, right? And so all that to say, there are some things that are specific to to Israel, some things that sort of apply to the Gentiles. As we go through this, I try to kind of highlight that, and it may or may not matter, um, may not matter at all to you. (laughs) Um, I'll get over that. Uh, But anyway, it, it, it may not matter necessarily in each and every situation, but I think there's some times that if we're going to understand Scripture literally, we've got to understand that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. And specifically, as we get into Revelation, uh, during the, the period of the Great Tribulation, uh, we'll read about, uh, and we'll see some of this in Ezekiel and Daniel and as we come forward, um, a lot of what is going to go on during the Great Tribulation is that God is going to deal with the nation of Israel. A lot of it is God pouring out His wrath on a, on a, a God-rejecting world, but a lot of it is um, uh, God uh, really bringing forth a revival amongst the nation of Israel during that tribulation period. And so, um, so as I say things here, and we kind of, let's not, let's, not, um, let's not think that God is done dealing with the nation of Israel, because here's another thing. If you think God is done with, deal, if you think that, okay, Israel, um, this is where it does matter. Uh, Israel sinned and they kind of rejected God, and so he's just done with them. 
So next time I sin and I turn my back on God or I backslide a little bit, I want to know that God is not done with me. Right? So it matters that God has not cast off his people. Let me, in the interest of time, we won't go there, but let me refer you to Romans chapter 11, specifically verse 1. Tells us very specifically, God has not cast off his people Israel. Now, we as the Gentile, as the church, we've been grafted in, we've been adopted, and a lot of this is brought out through, uh, through the book of Romans. Uh, but Romans 9, 10, and 11 really are all about uh, the nation of Israel and that God has not forgotten them, God has not forsaken them, uh, God has not cast them aside and replaced them with the church. Okay? Does that all make sense? Is that all fair? And so I say that not to split hairs theologically. You know that I don't like to split hairs theologically. But <clears throat> as we read through this, you might come across some of these teachings, some of these ideas. And um, so I just like to kind of have it in my, in my grid that, first of all, Scripture is Scripture. Scripture is inspired. It's infallible. If anybody has any question about that, I can give you some great resources on that. But that's, that's an anchor. Uh, that's, really the, that's really the starting anchor. That's, the, that's, the, that's where we go, for, go from. And then from there, we kind of work through these uh, prophetic thoughts and it's how we understand it. Is that fair? Yes. All right. So chapter 54 today, as we read, uh, God's going to give some hope for Israel for their fu near fulfillment and far fulfillment. So again, let me just say also as we read prophecy, and we've said this a lot so far, but I'm going to kind of say it today just to clarify. Often there's a near fulfillment and then there's, uh, but it's not, as you read the scripture, it's not totally, you see, it's not totally fulfilled in that near fulfillment. And that points to the fact that there's a, there's a more distant fulfillment, right? And so specifically, God is going to, God is, is, is prophesying here comfort to the captives that are going to be captured in, in Babylon and, and set there for 70 years as part of God's punishment, as discipline for them. But he's going to bring them back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple, reestablish, uh, you know, their, their worship system, okay? But that also points to a much greater yet future event where God is going to bring back his nation, right, which he's done in 1948, right? And yet, as we see that play out, it's kind of like we're in the midst of God regathering his people and accomplishing his purposes there. So there's a near fulfillment that's sort of a, think of it as a partial fulfillment very often, and then there's a more complete, distant, yet future uh, fulfillment. Is that fair? All right, so chapter 54, we're going to talk about Israel's hope for restoration from Babylon and for um, the end times, specifically the millennial kingdom after Jesus comes back and sets up his thousand-year reign on earth. Then chapter 55 and 56 um, speaks uh, to the Gentiles, those of us that have been adopted into the salvation uh, that's offered through uh, the God of the Jews. And so uh, beautiful scriptures here. Here we go. Sing, O barren, verse 50, chapter 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Now you got to understand again the cultural context. Barrenness was a disgrace to a Jewish woman. Uh, it, was, um, it was a very emotional, very disgraceful, very... Um, you know, almost the, uh, a barren woman in, in the uh, Jewish culture would have almost felt cursed. And then, you know, and God's using here, he's using an example of, an, of that as a metaphor, speaking to uh, their sort of spiritual barrenness while they're in captivity. And certainly when they're in Babylon, they're sort of spiritually barren. And yet God is again offering hope. He's going to tell them that even though they feel desolate now, uh, yet the day will come when... Um, more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman. And so God is offering them hope. And so he goes on, he says, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. And so he's talking about, you're going to come back from Babylon and you're going to settle in that, in that land of Israel there. And 
and it's going to be so fruitful and and you're going to be so blessed there that you're going to need to and again he's talking about you know the magnitude of the people and their and their families and all that you're going to need to stretch out and have bigger tents and you're going to stretch out your curtains and and lengthen the cords of your of your tents and and all of that and there's going to be great blessing there but i want to highlight something here he says enlarge the place of your tent lengthen your cords strengthen your stakes in a sense, I don't want to read too much into this. He says, uh, for you shall expand to the right and the left. He's kind of like telling them, do all this in anticipation of, what, of the blessing that the Lord will bring, right? I mean, I don't want to get too hung up on the order, but it seems like he's saying, enlarge the place of your tent to make ready for the blessing that's going to come. And part of the reason I'm thinking that is because I've been thinking that um, really honestly since Wednesday night a little bit. Uh, Nate brought this out. Um, uh, honestly, uh, is, is, is great. I can, I'll never say, hey, listen to the recording of when I talked last, you know, three weeks ago. It was awesome, right? I'll never say that. But I might say it about Wednesday night once in a while. And I got to deal with him after I get home, but that's okay. So anyway, um, if you missed last Wednesday night, I would encourage you to, li- to listen to it from Second Kings chapter three and chapter four. He's two examples, two stories um, of what we're talking about. And to me, it applies to my life in terms of that. How it applies? It applies very much to my life. Um, but the first story was uh, three kings are out, uh, basically coming up against the Moabites, the uh, king of Israel, king of Judah, king of Edom. They're coming up against the, the Moabites, and basically they run out of water, and they're, they're, you know, it's too, they've gone too far to go back, and they're into, you know, they've got it, basically they're, they're stuck. They're stuck. And so Elisha comes, and he says, tell you what, start digging ditches in the middle of the desert because God's going to bring rain, or God's going to bring water. Uh, and... So they did that. They did that. Then you go to chapter, and, and what happened? God brought water, right? And they all had water, and they beat the Moabites. Then next chapter, a different, really same book, different chapter in a sense, this time instead of a bunch of kings and a, bunch, and a big army, now we're talking about an individual, the, the woman who was a widow, and all she had was a little jar of oil, as many of you remember the story. And she tells Elisha, hey, I'm going to you know, my husband died, and now I'm going to have to sell my sons into slavery uh, because I got no money. He says, what do you have? She says, I got a jar of oil. He says, go get a bunch of empty jars, right? Remember the story? Go get a bunch of empty jars and start pouring that oil into it and kind of multiply it like when Jesus fed the 5,000. And lo and behold, when did the oil stop multiplying? When she filled up the last vessel, Right? And so Nate brought out the point, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to keep in mind, God's blessing is directly proportional to our obedience. And I would, expand, I, I, would, I would maybe even go so far as to say to our level of expectancy that God is going to do what He says He's going to do. Does that make sense? So in this case, we see here, enlarge the place of your tent. Why? Because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be blessed. You're going to prosper. And I was thinking about it in terms of maybe even how we come here today, if I can just say this, just, just candidly. Sometimes we can come and we can say, well, hope the worship blesses me. And I hope, you know, you know, then we'll have that greeting time. I got to find somebody to talk to. Hope my friends are there, right? And then after that, we're going to have a teaching time and Boy, sometimes he just says stupid jokes, talks too long, rambles. And then we're going for lunch, right? How much will that person get out of his or her experience here on Sunday morning? Very little. Very little. How about, can you believe we have the privilege of worshiping God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. Man, I, I'm stoked to use, and now I'm stuck on Wednesday night, right? So I'm going to start using, I think I might grow my hair long. What do you think? No. no. <laughs> I am stoked to come and worship the Lord, right? 
And then after that time, we're going to have a time where, according to Galatians, we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we have the privilege of bearing one another up and, and encouraging one another and praying for one another. And then after that, if that weren't enough, after that, we're going to read the Word of God, the Word that is uh, given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for all those things that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I'm going to walk out of here more complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work after having worshiped the Lord and after having been a part of bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Which guy's going to get more out of the, ter- out of the service today? The second guy. So I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at myself as well. I'll tell you a funny story. We pull up in the parking lot yet this morning. Yet this morning, I should know, I'm getting ready to talk about that. I should have my slate clean, right, for that. I'm, we pull up in the parking lot. <laughs> I turn the van off. I grab my coffee cup. I jump out of the car. My wife says, you going to grab your Bible? Oh, yes. It's Sunday. I'm the pastor. We're going to church. I need my Bible. That's right. I forgot about that. Got my coffee cup, though. My coffee cup was steaming, and it was good. It was good. It had a little cinnamon on the top. It was awesome. I got my coffee cup. Had to go back and get my Bible. So there you go. So that way, now you know I'm not yelling at you guys, right? Maybe yelling at me. But do we have this expectancy? Do we have an expectancy that, man, this is our chance This is our chance to worship the Lord. This is our chance to fellowship with one another. This is our chance to hear the Word of God. That's what he's telling us. Enlarge the place of your tent because you're going to be blessed. He goes on, Do not fear, for you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. So again, he's talking back to to the captives in, in, you know, that's the interpretation. He's talking back to the captives uh, in, in Babylon there, and he's trying to encourage them. And uh, he knows that the consequence of their sin brings shame and sometimes disgrace, and we know that happens in our lives today. But the great thing about God is that His grace can take us beyond that. His grace always is able to take us beyond that. And that, although it, it, it was interpreted for them, it, it applies to them, that applies to us. There is nothing that we can do that's so bad that we're outside of the grace of God. There is nothing we can do, and we need to know this, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing we can do that is outside of the reach of God. And for those loved ones that you're concerned about, there's nothing they can do that is outside of the reach of God. So pray for those loved ones. And know that for yourself, when you stumble, when you want to beat yourself up and think, man, I am a loser with a capital L, no, you're no more or less a loser than anybody else that Jesus Christ died for. And we all need to know that. We all need to know that. Verse 5, he goes on, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So can you notice this? Notice these titles of God. Your Maker, the Lord of hosts, the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. That's who we're talking about. That's who we want on our side. And notice here now, the Lord gives us a, a little extra metaphor as a, as a picture, as a word picture. He says, your maker is your husband. Now, throughout the Old Testament, uh, God and his Jewish people, he, he uses sometimes this, this analogy of, you know, God is the faithful husband and uh, the nation of Israel is an unfaithful wife. Specifically, I refer you to the book of Hosea right? Hosea was a prophet. This is interesting. Hosea was a prophet. He was a real guy with a real life who lived and walked on this earth. He was a, he was a prophet, and God said, tell you what, I want you to go marry a harlot. And sometimes God causes us to, or tells us, or, or, or you know, leads us to things that seem kind of crazy, 
to make a point in our lives and into those that we might influence. But he said, I want you to go marry a harlot. And sure enough, he does. And sure enough, she uh, then becomes unfaithful yet again, right? And she kind of goes crazy. And God says to Hosea, I want you to take her back, right? It's the picture, and he basically, as he explains in the book of Hosea, he's explaining, this is what I am doing with the nation of Israel. I haven't cast him aside. My grace is always there for him. And then even as we go into the New Testament, right, we know uh, that God gives us the analogy that, uh, you know, specifically in Ephesians, um, that we're the bride of Christ. Christ is, is you know, kind of like the husband. Husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. And so the analogy kind of uh, carries into the uh, New Testament as well. Um, I want to highlight one other thing, too, just briefly. He says, for your maker is your husband. Husbands, listen to me, please. God identifies that your maker is your husband. God, God identifies this relationship between him and, and the nation of Israel in this context. And what's, what's God do for that nation? He loves, he loves her unconditionally. He takes care of her. He nurtures her. He does everything that she needs. What's he doing for us in the New Testament? In the New Testament church, all of that, right? What's it mean to love your wife like Christ loved the church? Well, that's a high calling. Because what did Christ do for his church? Loves us, nurtures us, dies for us, all of that. Husbands, let me just tell you, uh, I'd be remiss to not highlight that as, uh, as we read this verse. So the message is very clear what a husband is supposed to be. Wives, let me tell you something else that's not always quite as clear. And I think this is important for wives to catch. Your husband is not God. Your husband is not God. That, that I don't even know how to describe it because I'm not a woman, <laughs> but that need that you have, right? I won't ask for a show of hands, ladies, but have you ever had that need and you think, he is clueless to meet that need, Right? Yes, right? Your husband is not your God. And let me just tell you this. When you put him in that place, you put pressure on him that he can't live up to. I remember it was a great day when my wife realized this many years ago, that God is God. I'm a husband. I'm going to try to be like that. I'm working at it. I'm trying to be there for, for her, but God is the one you really count on. And when you do that, you take a pressure off your husband, and you let him be a husband that he can then sort of carry out his God-given role as a husband. Does that make sense? It's, it's one of those things you have to digest, honestly, but uh, I, think it's, I think it's from the Lord. So anyway, your maker is your husband. God, ladies, if you feel like uh, your husband's not all that on some days, if he ever has a bad day, right, that's okay, because God is, God is your source. And when we look to our husbands, when you look to your husbands for those things that only God can fulfill you're going to set yourself up for disappointment, and you're going to set him up for failure. And uh, it leads to a lot of frustration. Um, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I've forsaken you, for, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you in a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. So again, you know, because of the Jews' unfaithfulness, God allowed them some temporary punishment, but ultimately He offers them great mercies and everlasting kindness. And so they will come back from Babylon, and God will uh, offer them all that great mercy. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, as I have sworn the waters of Noah 
would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall fall apart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. So again, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. Okay, he's saying, hey, just like, you know, I told Noah that I would never destroy the earth again with a flood, which, by the way, here again, we see the story of Noah validated elsewhere in the Scripture. Okay, and so God says, just like I told Noah that I wouldn't uh, destroy everything with a flood, uh, I'm, all, I'm not going to be angry with you and send you off to Babylon in the same way that I've done, that I've done this time. Now, we could say, well, God, you know, let the Romans come in and conquer Israel in 70 AD. But somehow, in ways that we don't fully understand, uh, that apparently wasn't the same thing, wasn't God's anger uh, poured out and all of that. He says, O you afflicted one tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. So here's a good example of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, right? The near fulfillment is, hey, you're going to come out of Babylon, you're going to come back to Israel, uh, you're going to you know, you're going to have uh, blessings and jewelry and all this kind of stuff. But clearly, um, we don't see that fully fulfilled in that return from, from Babylon, but we do see it fulfilled in what's described as the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, right? The New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21, there are gates of crystal, you know, there's going to be lots of sapphires, colorful gems, rubies, uh, walls of precious stones. We see that very clearly described in great detail in Revelation 21. And so, again, we see a near fulfillment and a, and a more complete distant fulfillment. And as he talks about that time, he says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. And so, um, you know, again, partially fulfilled with the return of the captives, more completely fulfilled in heaven, right? Wouldn't it be a great, or more completely fulfilled in this case, in the millennial kingdom uh, that Jesus establishes? And, you know, we can say at that time, all your children will be taught by the Lord. Great shall be peace, the peace of your children. I mean, we've said before, you know, we, we, never, lose, uh, we never lose care for our children, no matter how old they get, right? We're always concerned for their well-being, and God, God reminds us that um, ultimately He will take good care of them. And so we're not going to have ultimate peace ever really here on earth, but we will have ultimate peace uh, yet future, and we can look forward to that. He says, Behold, I've created the, bl the blacksmith with, who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. I love this. He says, and this can apply to us, right? In our lives, we're going to have conflict, right? There might be people that want to come against us. There might even be people, uh, there might even be blacksmiths that, that build weapons that can be used against us. But God reminds us, hey, by the way, I created the blacksmith right? The blacksmith might create the weapon, but I created the blacksmith. And so I'm ultimately, uh, you know, I'm ultimately in control over that. I'm ultimately sovereign, even over the blacksmith that makes weapons that might try to come against you. So don't worry about it. Know that I'll take care of you. And so when you come back from Babylon into the, into the promised land, I'll take care of you. As it applies to us, even today, whatever weapon there is that's fashioned against us will not prosper. Why? Because God created the person that's got that weapon, right? And that, purpose, that person and that weapon and, and my life and everything else is subject to the ultimate authority of God. And so, tremendous comfort knowing that God takes care of us. Chapter 5, he moves on, he says, Ho! Now, that's been translated in some modern languages as yo. But here we read ho. So, if you're ever down south, whatever, and you read Isaiah chapter 55, you find, you go to a Christian bookstore in, in somewhere in the south, you might pick up a Bible, turn to Isaiah 55, and it might say yo there. But for our purposes, we'll say ho. 
was trying pretty hard on that one, wasn't I? Yeah. yeah, sorry. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. So now we're talking not just about the Jewish people. We're talking about everyone who thirsts. That's me, right? Everyone who thirsts. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, Matthew chapter 5. And so notice this picture. I want us to see this. God says, come and buy, but don't spend money, right? Come and buy, but don't spend money. Imagine if you could go to a store. I would say Walmart, but that's just, I mean, if I'm going to do this, if you're going to give me a shopping spree at some place, it's not going to be Walmart, right? I don't know. I don't even know what the store would be. Track supply. <laughs> Track supply, right? I mean, I'm going to just go in there and I'm just going to say, put it on God's tab. That'd be cool, right? Just swipe God's credit card. Go wherever you go, anywhere you want. Go to the mall. Put it on God's tab. Put it on God's tab. Put it on God's tab. Right? He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. What are we going to buy and eat? Look at this wine and milk. Milk's an Id- a picture of what we need, right? We need milk. A newborn baby needs milk, right? But also wine, like, you know, apart from the alcohol idea, the, the idea is, you know, abundance, that what, you know, kind of what we need, but also maybe what our wants might be right? But notice this, come and buy all that without money and without price. Why? Because God makes it available. Put it on God's tab. That's the invitation he gives to us. That's the invitation he gives to us. God loves to bless his children. Can I tell you this? Can I please, 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 please tell you this? God loves to bless his children. Well, you think, well, I don't know about that. I never got to walk through trash supply spending like that. God loves to bless his children beyond that. Beyond that. Our brains are so limited that we think that's blessing. But God loves to bless us beyond that. And he says, hey, by the way, why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Why do we spend money for what is not bread and our wages for what does not satisfy? I wonder if we could ever count how much money we all like, even if we just added up in this little gathering. Like how much money, uh, like let's, let's, we'll start, we'll start back in the back corner, right? Well, we're not starting here. Well, but let's start in the back corner. Like, how much money in the sum of your life thus far have you spent on something that maybe you thought was going to be awesome, and it turned out to be like, yeah, not quite so awesome. Like, if we started in the corner, we went to, if we added some total for all of us, right? That'd be a ton of money, wouldn't it? That'd be a ton of money. All those things we thought were awesome. I, I was listening to Chuck Smith talk about this this week. He said when he was years ago, he and his brother, they were into, they were going to pick up water skiing, right? And he goes through the whole long story, right? The first year they got this 25 horse, sounded like a 25 horse engine on an aluminum boat, and, and they learned how to ski, and it was awesome, right? But then by the end of the summer, they realized that one guy's got to sit on the front of the boat so it can go down, so he can get the, so he can get the skier up out of the water. And so, you know, that, it was going to be awesome. But, you know, then it's easy for me to pick on because I'm not a boating guy, right? But, um, you know, and then the next year, you know, they get, there's some 40-horse mower, uh, mower, motor that, you know, you don't have to sit on the front of the boat to pull the guy out. And it's, you know, that's going to be awesome, right? And then next thing you know, they're looking at inboard motors, and they're going to be awesome, right? And everything, I mean, we do this, right? There's always a newer car. There's always a faster car. There's always a newer thing, a faster thing, a better thing, a bigger house. A, you know, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? 
I mean, are any of those things evil in and of themselves? No, they're just a lot of energy spent on things that aren't going to live up to their expectation. Why do we have, think about this, why do we have, I'm not picking on any salespeople, but why do we have salespeople in this world? Why do we have marketing people in this world to convince us that we need something? I mean, I've seen a ton of marketing people over the years trying to come in and convince me that I need something that I don't need. And so we often spend our wages for what does not satisfy. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. God's not opposed to abundance. God just wants us to be so blessed that we understand what true abundance is. And so God says, focus on the true abundance. He says, incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So God calls all peoples, all nations, really everyone who thirsts to incline your ear and come to me. And that's where we find what he says here, the sure mercies of David. He's speaking now of the Messiah, because David was uh, promised that his descendant would be a Messiah, would, the Messiah would come from his line. And so when we see the mercies of David, that's a reference to the Messiah. And sure enough, Jesus and all the fullness of the relationship with him is better than the fastest car and the fastest boat, infinitely, infinitely. And he wants us to know that. And he wants us to experience that. He wants us to experience the depth of relationship with him that is better than anything we could spend our money on. And I love this as he goes on. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. All right? Can I tell you this? There are finite windows of opportunity in this life. That's just reality. When you take your last breath, you will have made your decision whether or not you will spend eternity in heaven or hell. There's no, like, there's no holding place. There's no, let's get there and see what happens. Right? When you take your last breath, your eternal destiny will have been determined. Seek the Lord while he may be found. So that's for salvation. I think there's another thing that's for the blessing of the Lord, right? I think seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You know, as far as blessings, I can find a blessing by serving him today right? There's a certain blessing in serving Him today. It may not even be anything that I understand or can conceptualize or anything like that, but there's a blessing in serving Him today. Guess what? Tomorrow, that opportunity came and went. Today's opportunity, right? You see this? I think I mentioned last week. I've lived long enough. I've wasted enough time. I've certainly wasted enough dollars for things that don't satisfy. I've wasted, I've wasted, I've wasted. I mean, we've all done that to some extent. So, but to the point now that in my life, I mean, I'm still going to do stupid things, right? But I just, I, I want to live every day as intentional as I can for the Lord. That's where the good stuff is. That's where the blessing is. I want to be as intentional as I can. I want to seek him while he may be found. Those opportunities for blessing often come and go. You may have an opportunity today to bless someone. And if you do that, if you act on that opportunity, there's going to be some blessing for you from the Lord. That's just God's economy, right? If you pause on that, if you say, "Uh, I bet somebody else will do that, guess what? Somebody else will probably do that, and you'll miss your opportunity, right? And so, I mean, I don't want us to walk on eggshells and that sort of thing. I'm just saying there are windows of opportunity. 
There are finite windows of opportunity for seek the Lord while he may be found. While he may be found indicates that there may be a time when he may not be found. And certainly our destiny is determined before we die. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Again, we see this great picture of the Lord's grace, right? Wherever, however far we've gone, let the wicked forsake his way. Stop going that way, right? The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And guess what's going to happen? Is God going to stand there when he returns? When the story of the prodigal son, when the, when the son returns, what does the father do? Does he say, sorry, you got to you got to pay back what you owe. Does he do that? No. God will have mercy on him, and he will abundantly pardon. That's the way of the Lord. Look at this. For my ways are not your ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Wow, what a lifetime to get our heads around those two verses. Can I suggest these are two verses that we need to spend our life getting our heads around these. So let me try to do it in just a second or do what I can. Consider the circumference of the earth. Anybody have a ballpark what the circumference of the earth is? 24,901 miles. 24,901 miles. Is that a long way? That's a pretty good way. How far is it to go from here to Florida, South Florida? About a thousand miles, right? So you go to Florida. If you did that like 25 times, it's doable. Be a good little, be a good little jaunt, but it'd be doable, right? Part of you have to go by boat, right? But it's doable, right? You know, if you fly, you talk to somebody that's flown to, you know, Eastern Europe or something, you know, you can do that in a day, right? It's not unthinkable in a day, two or three days to fly around the world, right? 24,000 miles, 24,901 miles. You know, that's kind of how Earth is measured. The heavens, from a human standpoint at least, are measured in millions of light years, Right? What's a light year? It's, it's how far you go at the speed of light in a year. How far is that? Way. <laughs> way. The answer is way. It's kind of like ho. It's way, right? That's how far you would go if you were riding on a beam of light for a year. Okay? Now we're talking about millions of light years. Does that 24,901 miles seem like a long way? Not really. Not really. I think that's how it is whenever we try to limit God by trying to make him think on our level. Does that make sense? When we try to make God think on our level, first of all, we can't do that, right? Thank God. But when we try to, we're really trying to make him go from millions of light years, in a sense, to thousands of miles. And, well, you say, well, I'd never do that. Really? We all do that. Well, you know, it just doesn't seem fair that God would do this. You know, I'm mad at God because he let this happen. You know, it, it seems like if I do this, God ought to repay me by doing this. You know, it seems like God should, here's my favorite. You know, if I were God, there should be a period of that, not a comma, right? Because that, that, should, that sentence should stop right there. You know, if I were God, I would do this. Remember, I mean, we all do this to some extent or another right? You know, God, why did God let this happen at this time in this way? Well, let me just say this, for as my thoughts, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Whenever we try to limit God by thinking we know what he should do or what he ought to do or anything like that, we're trying to limit him 
we're trying to limit Him. And because we can't limit Him, we then get frustrated and bitter. How much better to say, Lord, Your will be done. Not my will, but Your will be done. That's a hard prayer to pray, honestly. Not my will, but Your will be done. Lord, I'd like to see it this way. Lord, it seems like, according to Your Word, it would work out this way, but You're smarter than I am, so, you know. Now, does that mean we just throw up our hands and say, oh, whatever, God is God, I'll never figure it out. No, that's not what it says. That's not what it means. But it means we keep serving Him, and we do it in a surrendered sort of way. I'm speaking a little bit to responsibility person. You know, I've talked about, you know, there's responsibility people and sovereignty people. Sometimes I see this, honestly, when we kind of get a little bit on the responsibility side. You know, the responsibility side says, the world ought to work out this X, Y, Z way. And God is infinitely bigger and smarter and greater and more loving than my XYZ justice or my XYZ, this ought to happen this way. So let's serve the Lord, but let's serve Him in a way that is surrendered to Him. Let's let Him drive the ship. Let's not try to drive God's ship. When we do that, we find ourselves being very frustrated. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, I love this, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So let's pause there. You ever thought about this? Rain comes down, waters the earth, evaporates, makes a cloud, evaporates a little more, makes a rain cloud, rains again. If it's cold, it snows, right? If it's warm, it rains. And then as the water comes down, then it, you know what it does? It, gives, it brings forth uh, a bud, right? And it produces um, uh, vegetation that not only gives bread to the person that's going to eat, but it gives seed for the next generation, right? Or the, or the next generation of food for, because this bread's going to run out after I eat it, right? So um, it, makes, it makes the water brings forth and bud, it gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You ever think about that? I believe, you know, we talk about, you know, as Christians, you know, we're just, you know, we walk by blind faith and stuff like that. Can I suggest this? Every atheist, every agnostic that ever stuck a seed of any kind inside dirt and poured water on it is living by faith, right? Can any of us really explain how that works, right? I stick a seed in dirt. I pour water on it, maybe I expose it to sun, right? And next thing you know, I get not only something to eat, but seed for the next generation, right? That's a, that's a life of faith. Why, but, why do I, but why do I live that life of faith like it's no big deal? Because that's what always happens. That's what always happens. Again, we have this expectancy that God is going to bless, that God is going to uh, meet us here, that God is going to lead us and guide us according to His Word. Guess what? We, we have that kind of expectancy, and we live that kind of blessing, right? So, no, we can't, <coughs> excuse me, we can't really, ex I mean, scientists can think they're smart. Really? Scientists can think they're smart, and I've studied enough science that then gets retracted, even in my short lifespan, right? I can tell you, this is a, side, this is a diversion, but there have been lots. I've been a doctor since 1991. There have been lots of things since 1991 that were medically absolute fact. This is the right thing to do. Fast forward a dozen, you know, a couple dozen years, whoops, that thing uh, kills people. <laughs> really? And so now I just have to, you know, I tell my patients, today, I, I tell my patients now, I say, this is uh, really the best knowledge. Uh, this, is, this is, at this point, this is, this is what I think is the best thing I know at this point. Because I think this is the best thing that the experts know at this point. That's as good as it gets. That's as good as really any honest person can, can deliver. We don't know how seed works, really. We don't know how that works, but I'll tell you what, how cool is this? In the same way 
so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Why do I sow the word more than my own opinion, more than my own theology? Why do I want to stick to this word? Because it's going to accomplish something supernatural, just like the seed does. It's going to accomplish something supernatural because when God sows his word, it's not going to return void, and it's going to accomplish all that he intends for it to. And it'll prosper in the thing for which he sent it. That's a beautiful promise. That's a beautiful promise. Can I tell you, there's the, the word of God. This is not a book full of great ideas. This is not a book full of theology. This is not a book just full of wisdom. This is a book that is supernatural. It's like the seed and the rain and the dirt. It is supernatural. It causes a supernatural fruit to bring up and bear forth in our lives in a way that's beyond what we can understand based on the wisdom that we read in it or based on the historical lessons that we can read from them. Yeah, we can learn those historical lessons. We can, we can read the wisdom of Solomon. We can read uh, the lessons of Jesus. We can read the Beatitudes. We can read the, the teachings from Paul. We can read all of those things. And yes, those are all awesome. But there's a thing above and beyond that he says in Hebrews, the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. It goes infinitely beyond the logic or the intellect or the wisdom that's in it at face value. Please know that. Please know that this is a living book. It's not an encyclopedia of good ideas. It's not like the Christian version of some other religious book. This is, a living, this is a living book like a seed is living. So in the same way that the rain comes down, causes the seed to bring forth seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God is supernatural, no doubt about it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. So look at this. The life of serving the Lord, the life of living by the word, is blessing that goes way beyond spending our money on wages for stuff that does not satisfy. Way beyond. That's where we go out with joy. We're led out with peace. We break forth in singing. All of that. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that, you shall, that shall not be cut off. So in the near fulfillment, that is the life that we live here, we have abundant life as we serve the Lord right? We live according to his word. We're blessed beyond what even makes sense. We stop spending all of our money and all of our energy on things that don't satisfy, and we start living for the Lord. And now we're singing, and we're joyful, and, and we understand that God's thoughts are infinitely higher than ours, and so therefore he leads us, and we just follow, and we stop trying to push him around and telling him what to do. And then next thing you know, we have all this joy and we have, uh, it's like in our lives, instead of thorns, we've got cypress trees. Instead of briars, we've got myrtle trees, right? Now also, there's an ultimate fulfillment of that, right? Where did briars and thorns come from? They came from the curse, Genesis chapter 3, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, guess what? All of a sudden, we've got thorns and briars, Right? And in the kingdom age, when Jesus comes back, that's going to go away, right? Instead of the thorn, we're going to have a cypress tree. Instead of a briar, we're going to have a myrtle tree. So chapter 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. Again, this is for all people. 
For my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now, again, I talked about, as I talked about earlier, there's some aspects of the uh, uh, some aspects of, of the Scripture that were specific to the Jewish people. You know, the Sabbath was a, was a part of a covenant between God and the Jewish people, but it speaks of a, of a um, more fulfillment that he, that he allows for us, and that is a time of fellowship with Him, right? God told the, the Jewish people, set aside uh, the seventh day of the week, because in the seventh day of, God, of creation, God rested. So set aside that seventh day of the week and don't work. Did he, so he could like ruin their fun or ruin their productivity? No, so he could have fellowship with them. They could be reminded of that relationship they have with him. And so for us, uh, you know, we're not under that same law necessarily, but we are, uh, as we do righteousness and as we follow the Lord, uh, we're blessed we're blessed and uh, we enjoy sort of the Sabbath relationship that we have with the Lord. He says, do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and those and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So again, so the idea is a little bit uh, specific here, you know, to the eunuchs, right? To the eunuchs who, have, who, who, who keep my Sabbath, to the eunuchs who have fellowship with me, I'm going to give them something better than sons and daughters, I'm going to give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Again, God's blessings, when we follow the Lord, when we follow the Lord according to His Word, when we follow the Lord according to His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit, His blessings so far exceed anything that we can buy which does not satisfy because His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts and His ways are so much higher than our ways. And so we see this play out as we serve the Lord there is blessing, there is richness that is supernatural, that is difficult to understand or even to explain. Verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds my, fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. You may recall Jesus quoted that when he turned over the temple, uh, turned over the tables in the temple. The Lord God who gathers me, the outcasts of Israel says, yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. And so, you know, to the sons of the foreigner, the ones that join themselves to the Lord, to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord. To that person, that's to us, all the blessings of fellowship with Him are available. And thus, His house is called a house of prayer for all nations, not just the Jewish people, but for all nations. Verse 9, all you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant. They are all dumb dogs who they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. So now these last basically few verses here in chapter 56, he kind of calls out, if you will, uh, selfish leaders. So we all have a sphere of influence, right? We all have a sphere of influence, and we need to be responsible with that. Uh, when we're not responsible, uh, it's kind of a funny analogy, but he says uh, we're like uh, blind watchmen and like watchdogs that can't, uh, w- that can't bark, right? Or can't even wake up, right? You're all dumb dogs. You can't bark and sleeping down, love to slumber. You can't even wake up. You ever had a watchdog, right? The thief comes in, starts, you know, going through all your jewelry or your cash or whatever, right? And the dog just stays there asleep. Is that a, is that a watchdog? No. That's not a watchdog. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which never have enough. Those dogs just sit around and eat, right? 
They're shepherds who cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one for his own gain from his own territory. Come, one says, I'll bring wine and we will fill ourselves with intoxicating drink. Tomorrow will be such a day, will be as today and much more abundant. Be careful in those, in those spheres of influence that you have that were faithful shepherds in those ways. You know, James says, uh, you shouldn't, don't rush to want to be a teacher because teachers are subject to a, to a stricter judgment. I, because I teach the Word of God, I'm subject to a stricter judgment than I would be if I weren't a teacher of the Word of God, right? So I take that seriously. We should all take that seriously. We all have, again, spheres of influence that, um, that we need to be uh, faithful and responsible with. So, God wants fellowship with us. God makes it available. God does not want, to, want us to waste our energy, our money, our time on things that don't satisfy. He wants us to surrender to Him. He loves to accomplish His purposes, and He always makes fellowship with Him available. And as we live obedient to His Word, there is a supernatural blessing there that goes beyond what we can even explain, right? Now we read in Ephesians, right? He loves to bless us above and beyond all we can ask or think, right? And He does that through His Word, by the power of His Spirit. He loves to bless His children. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank You for Your goodness. Thank You that we can have fellowship with You. Thank You that You desire to have fellowship with us. And Lord, thank You that Your ways are so much higher than our ways. Lord, we are so limited even when we think we're smart, Lord, we are so limited. Lord, help us to know the frailty of our own opinions. Help us to know the depth of your word. Help us to know the supernatural depth of living according to your word and help us to be those people who do so. Help us to have an expectancy, Lord, like the, like the widow that, grabbed, that got all those jars. Lord, help us to be the kind of people that go through life gathering all the jars we can find, eagerly, eagerly grabbing all the jars that we can find, knowing that, you're, that that oil, the, the oil of your Holy Spirit is available to us and often available to us in proportion to our obedience and so, Lord, help us to be those people. Help us to live with the expectancy that you are who you are and that you are faithful to your word. Lord, thanks for loving us. Please have your way with us now, Lord. Go with us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have an awesome, awesome week.